that accessibility, that inclusivity, constantly breaking down those barriers is really what is just the next thing we have to do. Part of our, our mission is really about what you can do over what paperwork you have. It's really about just making it more inclusive at every stage here. My name is Ish Bade, and I'm the founder and CEO of Virtually. And this is Reshaping Education, where we discuss boot camps, online education, and how the internet is changing how we learn. Hey, everybody. Ish here today, joined by Jeremy Shackey, co-founder and CEO of Lighthouse Labs, and his co-founder, Josh Bortz, co-founder and chief product officer of Lighthouse Labs. So excited to have you both here. Would you guys be able to introduce yourselves real quick? Sure. Uh, well, first of all, thank you so much for having us, us Ish. Huge fans over here. Uh, so uh, I am Jeremy. I'm CEO and co-founder. I am a technical Luddite. I just need to put that out there right away. Okay, Josh over here is the one. Any technology questions, you got to direct them to him. Uh, I'm here to appeal to the general audiences and people. I'm the lovable one. Okay, I just want to be clear about that. Josh, go ahead now. Good, Your turn. What do I have here to us? To be fair, um, everyone in I can agree that I'm not the lovable one. Um, so I'm, I'm Josh Bortz. I am one of the co-founders. I was CFO for a while, still am, but I've always written the last few years taking on product as my main responsibility. I am based out of Mexico City, um, which I'm going to go have some tacos right after this since I am starving. Um, and yeah, I'm really excited to be here. Yeah. Also, a couple tidbits before the recording started. Josh and Jeremy, good childhood friends and new parents. Or I guess Josh is the new parent. And then Jeremy, you just had your second. Twinning out over here. That's that's. A hundred percent. We like to do everything uh, together. Both of our wives are actually from the same small town in Ontario. Um, actually, it's, it's near where you were born-ish, I think, uh, near Mississauga. Nice call out. Wow. Wow. Twinning out. I love it. I love it. Well, with Josh, Jeremy, I'm super excited for this conversation. So as you guys are familiar with the podcast, what we really focus on is the change that's happening in education right now. And it really starts at the bootcamp movement, which we've now tracked down the history we've interviewed probably a couple dozen bootcamp founders like yourselves. And everybody's around agreement that really this revolution starts around 2011. So there's this Hacker News post put up by Sharif that ends up being the launch of Dev Bootcamp. From Dev Bootcamp, we get three other kind of bootcamps emerging, including Hackbrite, App Academy, and Hack Reactor. And then within the next few years, basically 2012 to 2015, there's this explosion of boot camps, and it's really been transforming education as we know it, especially upskilling workforce, reskilling, upskilling. Now, help me understand where Lighthouse Labs comes in. Where were you guys when all of this kind of all this action was happening back in 2011, 2012? This feels only appropriate that Josh starts by answering this, as he was way more immersed in it before I was. So go ahead, Josh. Fair enough. So one of our, our other co-founders, Krem Virani, and I uh, actually owned a software development agency at the time, and we were struggling to hire graduates, uh, hire developers, just like anyone else. And so we, we partnered with some, some business school people we met who wanted to launch an idea of a bootcamp. We had never heard of this before, and they hired us to build the curriculum, to teach it. Not going to name uh, the bootcamp because we then had, after the first cohort, a difference of opinion on how important quality was to it. And we were in Toronto at the time. And uh, Crum, having never visited Vancouver in his life, decided that he loved teaching and he's moving out to Vancouver to start a bootcamp. And do we want to be part of this or not? 
I obviously knew nothing about education. I knew nothing about uh, marketing. So we had to go out and find the right people who were able to support us. Jeremy was walling away in a go-nowhere job. I'm not sure he was doing excellent in a sense of yeah. director of marketing, director of marketing. Josh just doesn't respect marketing, you know? Yeah. And so I convinced him to uh, uproot his life and his, his wife. And they, uh, along with a couple of others, uh, moved out to Vancouver uh, to launch what we hoped would be a very student-focused uh, education experience. Personally, I come from, I went to the University of Waterloo to do software engineering and uh, computer engineering, actually. But where I learned to program was on the job. And so it was always part of our philosophy that really where you learn to code, where you learn this is actually on the job. And I, I did five years of engineering and really the skills I learned, I could have learned in one semester. And so that was really the, the core of what we were trying to do there. Yeah. And it's a little surprising that you went to Waterloo because I've always, so my, a little bit of my background is I was a software engineer at Facebook and I interned twice at Facebook, 2015, 2016, and the Waterloo interns would just wipe the floor with everybody else. And I was always curious, why is it that like these, who are these Waterloo kids and why are they everywhere? And it's interesting. There's a, we do, there's a lot of criticism on this podcast about the university system, but I think Waterloo is probably one of the programs that I admire the most because of what you're talking about here, which is learning happens on the job. And I think Waterloo is one of the few universities that understands that. And I believe, I, I don't know how it's changed over the years, but they have five required co-ops. And so by the time you've graduated as an engineering student, you already have years of industry experience under your belt. And ultimately, I think that was the fundamental reason why when you would see any of these intern classes, the Waterloo interns would drastically outperform all the other interns and they would get promoted faster. They'd get to work on the bigger projects they get through these projects faster and ultimately have better job outcomes. And so it sounds like your experience at Waterloo ultimately impacted your kind of the pedagogy and kind of the initial DNA of Lighthouse Labs. Absolutely. Though, let, let me be clear. Facebook never wanted me to intern. So Ish and I are at very different to software development levels here. Uh, go ahead. <laughs> I'll just add, I'll just add in because Josh jumped right into Crumb leaving and going to Vancouver to start the boot camp. But to your point about the history of all this, as this was all happening, there was actually multiple conversations that happened between Josh and Crumb and a couple of the other people in the community at the exact same moment where we went to launch in Vancouver. Two other groups launched in Toronto, which are still here to this day. And both of them, actually, the two that launched are probably the more kind of formidable ones at this point within the Toronto region. And then at the same time, when we went out to Vancouver, another one launched like a week after we launched in Vancouver. And right now, if I look at the entire landscape in Canada, there's probably only been like two additions or three additions to the total equation of boot camps since that point. So all within probably a one-year time frame, everything emerged in this space here. And that really it changed it changed landscape for education for us. Absolutely. Yeah. And then this is we talk about this all the time. It's like sometimes nothing happens for decades and then decades happens in weeks. And I think this like 20 will continue to like throughout the future of kind of education. We'll always look back as this was one of the biggest turning points in kind of educational history. Especially for the fact that like, when you think about it, like, it's not easy to start a school. Like, like if you actually look at like, if you wanted to start a university today, like in terms of buying like buildings and campuses and paying for faculty and licensing and endowment, like all this stuff, tens of millions of dollars. And yet over the course of from 2011 to 2015, we have now dozens, if not hundreds of boot camps that are started globally, uh, but take, I guess, the audience into 
your shoes? Like you guys are starting off this school. What did it take to get it off the ground? What were, what were those first six to 12 months like? <laughs> well, my, my favorite thing to tell people first and foremost is that we are in tech education, but we are not in ed tech. We are the idea of how hard this business is, education that happens to teach tech, not the same business model at all. Very, a very different space. Um, I'd say from our ends, the first six to 12 months really involved a lot of reactive elements to the fact that nobody really understood what this was. And we had to, that included government, <laughs> where every day it felt like there was a different concern over whether a government would try to shut us down or step in and try to derail the way we were building. There was getting employers on board and making sure that they believed in this fighting the stigma from developers across the board who'd been through CompSci, that there was zero chance that anyone would be good enough to do this, to actually just having the upfront money to withstand the fact that this is an expensive education. And I think that's probably one of the biggest misconceptions because it's private education and the price tags are somewhere between ten dollars to $16,000. But right away, we there is a lot of dollars that goes into the support that's necessary for people to be excellent, especially because we take them all the way to the actual job. And so that the amount of money having to be put forward for that to actually nail that, well, that started, we Josh said we moved out with a, a bunch of co-founders. We started at six, six months in, we were down to what, four, and then another six months in, we were down to three, I think, something of that nature. And that was just based on purely the challenge of the type of business, the business model, uh, and how difficult it was going to be to build what we really wanted out of it. That's got to, that's got to be pretty demoralizing to lose nearly half of your kind of founding team to, to walk us through what, what were the turning points? Like, obviously I think those that are probably like every founder goes to this like hero's journey where things are at the darkest. And then there's this moment where things start to turn around. What was that moment for you guys? Oh, that's easy. It's the HTML 500. I feel like this is co-founder code right now. <laughs> well, no, there's a couple things. First of all, it wasn't demoralizing at all because in reality, the idea of going through what this should be as a model was just something that I think, like I said, I think there was a couple co-founders that really truly believed this was probably more tech and could scale up and everyone would have their feet up on the couch within two to three years. And there was other co-founders that were like, absolutely not. This is going to be a difficult model. It's about trust. It's about how you build this whole piece. And and Josh's reference point is we, we had a, a very early on, because I came from a marketing background, specifically an experiential marketing background, we decided to launch an event that was going to teach 500 people for free how to code in a single day, get a bunch of sponsors on and really make a lot of noise with it and bring a lot of partners to the table. What you do is you build the property, the whole thing, and then you hope that you get sponsors. And in the meantime, I basically came very close to bankrupting Lighthouse Labs as we were doing it. We did end up getting the sponsors. We ended up getting a bunch of our, a bunch of PR noise. We made, we got our best first employees. I think five of them ended up coming from that whole piece that have been, that stayed with us for years and were critical. And we got a ton of hiring partners and, and employers. So it was a, on the one hand, it was pretty much the, the whole business, the whole entrepreneurship ride in a three-month time frame. <laughs> it was the down and then the up. So this was like an event. This was like a, a conference hackathon-esque type event. You got it. Yeah. Josh, it go was, ahead. It was really introducing people to the concept that coding is for, can be for everyone. Uh, and listen, I don't, I'm not just the person here who thinks that everyone is going to be a professional coder. That's not what we're saying. But a lot of people, especially at that time, we looked at code and said, oh, this is only for PhDs, for the really intelligent people. Then we created an event where you had people coming from all walks of life. People had never used a computer before. And at the end of the 
a three, four hour session, we had them launching their own website. And it was that experience of doing it all as a community and seeing it and putting it together. It, it, there was just, it was an honest ripple through the Vancouver community at that time talking about this. And you saw employers come in and you saw students. And we went from cohorts of 10 individuals to all of a sudden you're getting not people knocking down our door saying, how do I get, join you? And it was just making this uh, accessible. And, and that, that, that accessibility, that inclusivity and constantly breaking down those barriers is really what at every level of our companies it's just the next thing we have to do. It's we've got the first one, it was that signaling. And then from now we're, we are now a signal across Canada. Listen, I don't love it. The fact that part of our, our mission is really about what you can do over what paperwork you have, what credential you have. But the fact is that the lighthouse does have some cachet in the signaling market now, but now we're on to the next things. How do we make this inclusive for people who uh, can't come into us in a space? We were fit, like what we're all talking about in those first years first eight years, seven years of our life, we were an in-person boot camp, and that was great, but it was only accessible to people who were downtown campuses and were able to give up their lives to do that. Now we have flexi flexible programming, flexible timing. It's really about just making it more inclusive at every stage. I think Josh, I think Josh just nailed your whole interview issue. He just got through all the parts at once. So there you go. Yeah. And I'm, yeah, that's right. Boom. Mic drop. <laughs> yeah, I think we can call it right there. No, actually, well, one of the pieces I want to go back to is we were talking about credibility a little bit and even a little bit of credentialing in terms of conveying to employers and government that like this is a valid education. I'm curious, going back to that like very first cohort, like how did you go about conveying to that very finding your very first student and basically having showing the credibility for them to take a chance on you guys? Yeah, we did a couple things, I think, right off the bat. First of all, I do think it was how we went out and build relationships in the community with the right tech companies, the startup tech companies, the ones that were really thinking a little bit more advanced and progressively on how they were doing their hiring practices as opposed to like comp sci degree or nothing. People who respected the self-built developer was a really big one. But we went and interviewed, we talked with, other, we with them, we saw what skills they really needed. We showed them our actual interest in doing it right and not just from a business model perspective. Um, but probably top of the list from credibility, Josh and Crum had built a dev shop. They'd hired grads from other programs. They, Crum, was our full-time instructor, curriculum writer. And honestly, when you put him in front of other software developers, loved him, right? Like they, they truly loved what he was putting forward. And I don't think we, I don't think Lighthouse ever builds a success without Crum being able to go out there and just talk to people from a very earnest side. I'm a developer. Here's how I'm thinking about it. What do you think position? that let others get on board. And as soon as you had the dev community on board, like as soon as there were devs that were s supporting this, it meant a lot to a lot of people. There was always that low hanging fruit, the few people who were paying attention to tech, seeing these boot camps in play to the point of exactly what you're saying, that the first message that came out and then some of these boot camps that emerged, the first group of applicants were all people that had seen that already and went, thank God there's one in Vancouver. Then we had about 20 students like that. Then the hard part was, okay, how do you get the rest of them? <laughs> we just burnt the 20 to 25 people who were really excited about us being in Vancouver that gave us the signal that this business is going to be great. And now we have to get all the rest of them. And that was where Josh pointed out to the intimidation element and, and really helping people get past the idea that they couldn't do this. And that was a major element for us. Yeah. And, and, and uh, Josh, did you want to add something to that? Just solely community has been a center of everything we did. We, we based ourselves out of a co-working space, Launch Academy in, in Vancouver to start with. And uh, Jeremy loves this, I don't know if it's called a story of the stone suit, 
but it's really about what everyone can bring. We, we only bring part of the solution here. We need buy-in from uh, government. We need buy-in from the tech, from hiring partners. We need buy-in from parents. And you need everyone to feel that this is a part of the solution. And that takes time. And that takes not just taking, but giving. Uh, and that was events like HTML 500, but we used to host speaker series is all the time. We would use, you know, we'd go out there and be um, sponsoring other community events. It, it really, about bringing everyone together was a big part of our success. But we went as, we went as far as bringing our competitors to the table for some of the things we were doing, because it was important that every boot camp was somewhat successful to make sure that market acceptance was totally there, as opposed to us just looking good, but ever, ever looking good and trashing how everyone else was doing and bring skepticism to the whole model. That is a very counterintuitive move, but it, it seems like you, the goal here was to elevate the market. A hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I, w- one of the things we were talking about with these early students who are coming in is I think there was a kind of a thesis that has evolved over time, which is initially when boot camps came out, a lot of people thought is these as university killers in a lot of ways, because look, you're learning from industry experts, industry relevant skills in a fraction of weeks, not years, and also at an affordable price. And I think while that is fundamentally true in boot camps, I think do way more for student outcomes than universities traditionally do, especially here in the States, the demographic of people that we see actually go into boot camps, a good portion of them actually do have four-year college degrees. And you guys have now spent nearly a decade in the space. Help us understand who, who are the core, who is the core audience that is drawn to a bootcamp like Lenhouse Labs? So I'm going to start in this, you know, you said something before also, and I want to make it important for us, at least in Canada. I think this idea that boot camps replace university or are really disruptive to university was a very early concept from a lot of boot camps. For us, it's never been the concept. Even when Josh said, I learned most of my stuff on the job, the idea that people take four years in their life to figure out what they want to do at that stage of career and life is actually like, I did poli-sci. It was a, Josh makes fun of me about it all the time. At the same time, it was a very formative four years at university for me to learn and figure out what I wanted to do, who I was, how to be critical thinker, like all the, all those kind of majors that I think are important. I think the problem in the U.S. is how expensive it can be and how challenging it can be. And that's a very different problem than actually most of the world has, right? Most of the world is not, I shouldn't say most of the world, that's not fair, but there's a lot of places where the cost of education is not the primary problem and university is not the primary problem. It's actually that you want to change multiple times in your life. And maybe you learn on the job two years after you get a degree and realize that's not what you want to do. (laughs) And here was this massive gap that was all these developers and technologists needed. And what was really interesting over the first couple of years was how much we realized that bringing in people who actually had gotten a degree, who'd had some professional experience and now became a developer was actually something employers weren't just like, oh, I guess I'll take them. They loved it because the professional experience and the soft skills around a lot of these professionals was fantastic. And so our audience really, in a lot of ways, we've always called it somewhere between like 23 and 35. And it's not, it's not to say that university people don't come to us. Students, they do come, but we're really building infrastructure for people to change after that point because university has its purpose in place in the life cycle. And I, I just want to, I just want to state that right off the bat, because I think it's always been something that's actually allowed us to partner with universities and to focus on a different area than just trying to be disruptive, which wasn't, wasn't our goal. I, I don't know, Josh, if you'd echo or you had more to add to that one. I, I think you said it great. The, the only thing I'd add is when, especially at the beginning for our first few years, um, the thing we were able to provide students was technical skills. 
But to be successful in the careers, you needed to have other things. You need workplace skills. On top of that, you needed job search skills. You needed confidence. You needed signaling. There was a bunch of things you needed. And for the first few years, we only provided one of those sections. And we've, over time, we started adding more workplace skills, more job search skills to really create a, a complete student. But those students that come out and have some work experience, similar to an MBA program, they often don't like taking them straight out of a bachelor degree. They want them to have gone into that experience. We weren't ready at the beginning to really provide them with that, with those, uh, with that, those ancillary soft skills. And so it was very important that they came with them at the time. I think we are much more prepared now, though, at the same time, I think not knowing what you want to do and having that time to explore and really think more uh, critically about your future is really what universities and provide as an opportunity here. And just to, and just to give it, just to give it a personal experience ish, there was two students, I'm just, I'm not going to name names, but one who went in our program, he's probably in our third ever cohort. And he was a developer's dream. Every developer loved him. He's what we'd call a tinkerer. He'd like taken things apart, building things. And he was young. He'd come out of, he'd come out of high school. He basically did one year out of high school and came to us right away. And he, he was awesome. He was awesome. That kid went into four different jobs in four years, burnt the bridges almost every time he went into places. He was that kind of developer. He always wanted to build the new thing. He wasn't thinking on a professional level. He was thinking as a true, and I'm sure over time, he became that professional developer he needed. The other guy who came through our program had a bunch of professional skills, never, wasn't really in the same mindset as a tinkerer, but definitely understood the documentation, understood the idea of how to work with a team, understood that test-driven development was critical and important. That guy went on to be a senior dev really quickly, really quickly. And he had the learning capacity. He still had the logic elements. There was a lot of things that we saw that was necessary. It's not to say that, oh, you're a good professional, you're a good dev. It's just to say that those, when we saw that happening, we went, okay, companies, companies really like the people who can actually work as great devs and as great professionals. And that's me that they're actually seeing a huge difference in our grads. It's not just, oh, I guess I'll deal with a bootcamp grad because I can't get a university grad, which is what I think a lot of people thought it was at the beginning. Yeah. No. And, and this is, it's, you're preaching to the fire. Like we, we have an engineering team right now two two thirds of which are bootcamp graduates. And I think one of the things that I've noticed is having been an engineering leader is that the difference between the university grads we've hired and the, and, and the bootcamp grads is that the bootcamp grads have impact from day one. Like I have a university degree, yet most of what I learned was completely irrelevant. Like most of my curriculum was reminiscent of like early 2000s computer science. And the problem is that a lot of these programs, especially your programs, the rate of the change happens is so slow that by the time you've updated your curriculum, it's already outdated. And I think one of like, it's, this is what I think boot camps have nailed, which is just have by having industry experts leading and teaching, they, you have people who are actually in tune with what the industry needs. And so the students are actually learning very relevant skills, which they can take forward throughout the duration of their career. But again, I think in the age of the internet, we're, we're at a place where even that starts to go out of date. And so fundamentally, what's really important to instill in these students is the ability to learn. Learn how to learn. Learn, learn to learn for sure. And learn to be a feeling, to be uncomfortable, being uncomfortable. To be comfortable yeah. being uncomfortable. Yeah. 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 That sounds much better than what I said. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Those, those I love this. Are yeah. Switching gears real quick. I, I know one of the things you guys talked about is that for the first eight years of Lighthouse Labs, you guys were completely in person. Now you guys are predominantly remote. Do you guys still have any in-person component? 
or it's hundred percent online? We, we are bringing back at the moment, some like marketing workshops and learn to code, um, similar to the HTML 500, but our courses themselves are all virtual at this point. Yeah. That must've been such a big shift in, in the business. And so I, I really want to hear about like, what were the really big challenges of going completely in person to completely remote virtually overnight? It was virtually overnight, but it was years of arguing up to that point. And for anyone who knows Jeremy and I, we like, we like our fighting. Uh, we like uh, to argue. And the real question was always around quality. We all obviously see how uh, a virtual online allows you to scale and it provides you that ability to really reach people that would not be efficient otherwise. We weren't confident that we were going to be able to deliver the same quality experience and same outcomes for our students online. And it was something, because outcomes and quality are so core to our value prop, it was something we were always very scared to play with. And this is just not just about this. This is experimentation in general in education is always so fraught um, because you're playing with someone's real life. And the more you experiment and you have a failure, you know, in, in a SaaS product, you put out a product, you do A-B tested. If you have a failing example, you're not ruining anyone's life. Here, uh, we have that possibility that of actually doing that. And you have to be really careful what experiments you run in your product and how you communicate them and how it goes through. So there was a lot of planning, a lot of talking, and we weren't doing it. And then COVID hit. And we had been watching it. Our CEO, COO was right on it. In January, she's like, hey, we need to have plans prepped for it. So she had ran an experiment of taking all our students online for a day. And then all of a sudden, there was that day I, I was in the UK at the moment when everyone ran out of toilet paper. Next day, we're on live. And that we were lucky um, because we were a multi-campus uh, system. We already had seven campuses at the time. We had already built out our own tooling about how to get data virtually, how all, all our systems were working that way. We know we talked to a lot of our uh, competitors. Uh, we were very friendly with a lot of them. And there was definitely a much harder transition than what we had because of the systems we had built up. But we also had, what we had was we had the goodwill from our students at the time. They knew we were trying our hardest to make this a success and that there was going to be bumps along the road. And that buying from our clientele was honestly, was essential to be able to run the, to do this at the time. Because we made a lot of mistakes in our first month or two, and we're still fixing uh, things as we go there. That was, this is one of the fundamental problems I keep hearing about this kind of transition to online, which is again, you get that scalability, right? And then the, the problem that now emerges, which I think is it's in-person as well as online, which is when numbers are small, delivering outsized outcomes is relatively straightforward. You, especially when you have class sizes of 10 or 20, there's just this like gut feeling. You can tell when a student gets it and, and they don't, yeah. you can just see it on their face. Online, when you really start to cross Dunbar's number, uh, 150, and you're at scale and you're serving now thousands of students simultaneously, that you, that gut feeling is gone. It is so hard for any one person to keep a track of student engagement. So I, I want to hear about like, everybody's struggling with this right now. I was at ASU and GSB and talking to leaders in, in the space earlier this year, and everybody's trying to figure this out is how do you deliver education at scale and maintain outsized outcomes for students. How, how have you guys thought about this? So before, before Josh, I, I know you're going to answer this and you're going to take, you're going to take this answer and go far with it. Before you do, I'm going to say the answer he gave you before was as chief product officer and answer as I could possibly think of, because the one skipping step in all of this, the actual hardest challenge was our people. 
the, the staff were all in-person staff. The mentors and teachers were all people that loved those in-person relationships. And if it hadn't been for COVID, where it really wasn't an option, that was actually, to Josh's point of why it had not happened yet, it was the students weren't prepared. Don't forget, students got desks at home and had to work out with their partners how this was going to work during COVID. What a difference that made with good internet, right? Like on its own, everybody's sitting at a screen. Our communications were actually pretty good because we were multiple branches for staff, like not just our product side of stuff, but the fact that we were all good at talking on Slack, doing remote meetings, all those kinds of things. We had multiple branches, but I got to tell you the amount it disrupted and we saw, we learned like how much the branches were operating on like these little unique siloed levels of culture and things that we had to break open. And that was one of the biggest challenges of going was our people were, were not necessarily wanting to it wasn't it wasn't ready it was just wanting and when that wasn't an option for a while we actually got a long time to work out the kinks and force people into habits that were not just hey we're doing this for a week or we're experimenting it was look we're going remote we're going to be remote for a long time we've got to actually work on the solutions and that that changed a lot and so josh like to the point of actually right now so i can give him the proper intro to what he's about to talk about which is how do we look at remote at this point and how do we deal with scale we are very committed to remote going forwards. And part of the reason we're doing that is because we think it's the better place to try and find these solutions to how do you do scalable outcomes? How scalable outcomes is the thing that is the core milestone at Lighthouse as we look at this, where we don't lose those outcomes, those jobs, no matter outsized delivery of results is what it's all about for us going forward. So Josh, that's your intro. Now you can take it away and just nail it. <laughs> Thanks for the runway there, Jeremy. Yeah. Uh, Interestingly, the which we called out as one of the biggest issues, knowing where student performance is when you're not face-to-face. -face. Not saying it's not a problem, it's not something we've had to constantly work on, but it actually was not the biggest issue for us, and it's still not the biggest issue for us. And that's one of the advantages. We have a little bit of a unique operating model. We are not a single instructor in a classroom who leads that classroom. We, at the moment, have over 400 industry experts who work with us from anywhere from zero to 40 hours a week, and they come in. And we have a help button on every student's desk and they can just desktop and they can just go and click that and they will be matched up with someone who can go and assist them. And this is our model and had was the same model we used when we were in person as well. And so it was not always about that individual one-on-one -on -one relationship. We relied on group and collecting data and an analytics and dashboarding to really bring forward issues to our education success, our student success coordinators who are really managing that, our education managers. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, I, 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 so I geek out about data and specifically around student data. Talk more about that. Like what, like you're talking about, you're using a lot of data to inform learn that where, where learners are in their journey. Be more specific. What, what are the data points you guys are collecting and how is it being used? Absolutely. And listen, I, I, we've always said, you know what, we need more data. We need more data. Data itself is great, um, but it's what you do with that data. And we're still at the beginning stages of that journey. I would love to say that we had some very complex learning models behind the scenes that we're doing that. We're developing them. We have a data science team that is working on, on all of that. But really, it's uh, the data that we were collecting was one, uh, every interaction, every assignment, and they were, assigning, they were submitting maybe six to 10 assignments a day. So just completion right off the bat. Did you complete it? How long did it take you to complete? Where are you? That is a huge flag for student success. The second thing is that help button and how often are students asking for help? And then at the end of the assistance, at both the student would grade the, uh, the mentor who was assisting 
But the mentor was also providing us data on how we thought they were completing on the learning engagements for that specific, or the learning outcomes for that specific assignment. And so we were getting real time, generally five or six times a day on every student insight on how they were performing and where they're on the specific learning outcomes. And what you would do is they, those would be flagged instantly. Anytime anyone was done below average, they'd be flagged instantly to an education manager who would be able to come in. So it's nothing that is that uh, complex. It's really just about making sure that your systems are all connected, that you're getting insights and feedback, and that it's not siloed to an individual, but it's into your data lake. And so all of our data systems talk together. They all come together so that we can have a holistic view on where our student is at any time. I, again, we have a lot of work to do to perfect this as I, I'm also, I, I always say the, the, the problems in it, but it is that ability uh, has been an instrumental in our ability to scale. Ish, I feel the need to jump in here because I, this is, if you want to know the dynamic between Josh and Jeremy in a nutshell, it's that Josh is really what he's thinking about are all the data points currently that he'd actually like to capture and not the ones that we capture because that's the way he thinks automatically. I'm just going to add in that we do, we have our quiz scores, we have all the project evaluation. So we actually do evaluation on the project ends and where people were ranking on that. And I think what kind of works with our scoring system across the board and the many different ways that we were looking at stuff is that with so many different mentors and so many different people, a little bit of the bias of one person, one teacher that always rates people in one way or something of that nature, you were getting this cross score setup that at the end of the day, putting it all together, we could actually see where people were struggling and weren't struggling as they were going through, which was really the main first component was like, there's the two bases are, is a student struggling? And then how good are they? And I think those two elements are a little bit different, to be honest. We've always been very big on all the data and looking at all the you know student experience feedback. We get feedback on our curriculum. Every student rates how they felt every day at the end of the day. But to Josh's point, Josh basically usually tells me, Jeremy, I don't care about 90% of this. Here's the 10%. This is what we're looking at. And here's what I'm missing. And here's what we need to build in next. And it is all to do with how this stuff sorts itself into one number or two numbers or three numbers that really give us something that we can have as an unbiased approach. And I think that's still a lot of work. And I think that's smart because I think like there's so much data out there. I think this is one of the benefits of virtual learning is that I think, yes, you do have a harder time in terms of having that face-to-face -face interaction. So building relationships might be harder. That being said, every single interaction in a virtual environment can be tracked, which means it should be tracked. And that's data that you can use to better serve your students and more personalized experience. And I think one of the things that's a gripe of mine from university systems is that universities don't really do much with data. Actually, if anything, they use lagging indicators of student success. So they're not stepping in until the student has already flunked out of a class or a program. Whereas I think what I love about boot camps is that you guys, are, and specifically Lattice Labs, is you guys are, it sounds like you guys are using leading indicators, which is before even the student has dropped off, you can identify like this student is in trouble at an interview. Now, what I'm curious, you, you mentioned a lot of the signals already. What do you feel are maybe two to three signals that are missing that you haven't captured yet, that if you were to able to extract that from that student experience would give you a much clearer picture of that holistic student journey? Which I should first call out that issue. You are the real expert at uh, being able to predict uh, student behavior with virtually your, your startups virtually. You really have to, I, I feel nervous talking about this stuff, but I'm going to say that the data that we were looking to collect now, and we just made a, a move, for example, from Slack to Discord as part of the, to do this, is the stuff that really was what lacked to drop for us when we went from in-person to, on, to online, 
was that student-to-student interaction, the social interactions, the community building components of it. It's not always about social learning, which is very helpful. Students helping students is something we want to capture. But how often is a specific individual, how isolated are they? How connected are they to the rest of their community is a huge predictor of their successes in our program, as well as their success afterwards in the program, uh, post-program on there. And so getting a lot of those social connectivity data is really where we're focused right now, because we really think that's going to help us a lot in our predictions. If we, if on my end, if we were looking at student engagement is obviously a major, but actually it's expectations being met versus felt feeling supported are two different things that we're seeing two different experiences on how students are reacting to those things and what, what actually matters to a student versus what we think matters to a student. You, everybody like Josh's, I'm, I'm surprised he didn't say there's one stat that Josh hates more than any other stat of all stats of all time is the NPS. The idea of what that really means and what you can actually do with it and talk about a lagging stat. For us, that's the version of a lagging stat to a large degree because you can't do anything about it once you get it. For, for us, it's the, it is the leading elements that we're trying to build, trying to understand in terms of in before that NPS comes out, what really led to satisfaction, whether they, what they were and were not happy with. It's very hard to get that right in the moment, but I think those are the kind of stats I'd love to see a lot more of. Josh, you look like you won't die in a jump in there. Uh, always. I, I think one of the things that this, I don't want to get into NPS because everyone has an opinion, <laughs> but the problem, especially in our education space, is it really is dependent on when you ask and when you survey. And the same thing for all these leading indicators Jeremy's talking about is they're not very stable. And what you ask one day to the next is often a little different. And so we're always concerned about stats that are just coming from student feedback. They're very important, but they 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 don't tell the whole story. Yeah, and it's not necessarily about number of signals; it's quality of those signals. And so, one of the things we talk about internally in our team is ABC, which is attendance behavior coursework. Like, if you have attendance behavior coursework, that is like ninety percent of the way there, and anything else it will be marginally more useful. But that already gives you the full picture. And I think behavior it could be peer to peer to instructor, but there's a lot of there's a lot of ways to extrapolate that. That being said, one of the things I'm really, one of the last questions I'm going to have to ask you guys before we, we wrap up here is it's rare for me to have co-founders here like this. And so I want to ask a spicy question, which is I'm curious in over the last decade, as you guys have built this company, what are the fundamental aspects of the student experience that you guys have had different point of views on and how have you reconciled that? Ooh, spicy. I mean, I think it's an easy one, actually. It's the role of relationships in there. And it's, it's, this comes to me as actually when I wasn't chief product officer, but more chief financial officer. So I had a very different hat on, on there, but our model about bringing in uh, 300, 400 industry experts versus that model of having in, an individual teacher in front of the class, that was very controversial. It, it went against the grain of how education is done. So you expect there to be a teacher that is responsible for everything that happens in there. And we were, I was looking and saying that does not scale quality. It relies on a, finding the right teacher who is going to be an excellent teacher and finding that over and over again. We need to build systems that don't rely on that specific expertise and are instead being able to drive quality education, regardless of, of that individual teacher on there. And that I think took a long time and a lot of conversations to really get to the point about how we are still going to be able to drive quality, because if it didn't drive quality, we weren't going to do it. But I think that's the thing you said that we talked about before. It's not just quality of 10 students is not that hard. It's still a lot of work, but what's really hard is how do we do quality of 1,000, 2,000 students? And 
there a, that was really where we said you have to break your work structure. And what we find is we have to break our work structure and our way of doing at, at every hundred students, 500 students that get added in all of a sudden we're, we're saying, Hey, I know this was the right path, but this may not be the path anymore. And really we have to go back to first principles. And that was one of the, uh, the examples of where we said, you know what, we're now going to 60 students. We can no longer rely on having enough teachers that are exact quality we want to need, and we need a new model. Uh, I think Ish, to, I'll double down on that because I think what Josh and I are very different in is the idea of intangibles and what you do with them. It's not that Josh doesn't believe in intangibles, but it is the idea of, okay, what you can't measure, how much value do you put on it? Um, and so for a long time, especially at the beginning of any of these things, you believe in the magicians. I told you Crumb was the reason that the boot camp started. It wouldn't have happened without him. I couldn't measure what that looked like. And then in fact, that was why two of our co-founders, some of those initial arguments was talking about even stuff like your cost per acquisition before you've run anything and what you know and how you measure everything before you get to experience it and how much you trust the individuals who seem to see what you need them to see but they can't figure out how to put the measurement next to it. Our balance of, we had these core mentors, these core developers who could really tell us where students were and weren't, and they were doing a great job of it. Like they were doing a great job. And as soon as we got into the measurement pieces, it was very obvious what you couldn't measure and how challenging that was going to be. But to Josh's credit, when we started moving in these directions, it, at first you're missing those measurements and you don't see them, but then you actually get really good at having the conversations and finding out how to quantify or how to qualify what you are missing in the right category. So Josh, when we talk about social learning, right, separating that out and separating out all these different components of how an interactive relationship helps you into seven, eight, nine different categories and thinking about it like that starts to bring a different conversation to the table of what you are trying to build for and what you're trying to work at and how you look at it, as opposed to just trusting the overall anecdotal kind of genius intelligence of someone who can just see something who can't, who definitely can't break it down. And I think our organization grew a lot just by pulling some of that stuff out from the individual relationship and then having to force ourselves into, okay, how do you quantify some of this? And then the other parts, how are we at least watching for it? Even if it, it remains a little bit anecdotal. Well, nailed it. That is, that's, that is super exciting. I want to end on this one last question, which is, I think a lot of people talk about like boot camps as almost like it's like a thing in the past, but I actually feel like, like while we might not see like quickly the spawning of new boot camps as quickly as we saw in kind of the mid two thousands, I think it's, it's a trend here to stay and it's completely transforming how we think about adult education, upskilling, reskilling. And so one of the things I'm looking ahead at is, and I truly believe it's literally the first pitch of the first inning. Like we are so early in this kind of. Um, new era for education. Looking ahead in 10 years from now, if Lighthouse Labs completely crushes you guys, your guys' like goals and metrics, what will, what will the organization, how will the organization look fundamentally different and how will the world look fundamentally different? Well, as CEO, I get to go first and then Josh gets to be better. How's that? It was CMS Chief Marketing Officer as well, Jeremy. You probably uh, Okay. All right. Fair enough. I think over the next 10 years, personalization is everything. I think how people are learning what they need, what little levels are, what they're, what exactly where they start and what they need to get to an end result that you can actually measure is in the workplace, as opposed to just saying, I taught you something, look at what you learned. Aren't you happy? I think is fundamentally what changes how you personally, how you can actually track. You asked about the data missing. 
I think the idea is, is how you can help people learn at the exact level they need. And we see, we saw the start with all the MOOCs and everything that online was just something that people could do. Passive content is passive content, but support doesn't just need to be in-person support. It doesn't even need to be human support, but it definitely needs to be specific support that's helping you over your specific hump. And that's not easy to do. And I think as this education grows, it allows different entry points, different exit points, different ways of people growing and where it impacts industry is that we have a much better idea of how to calibrate what you actually need in skills and competencies as opposed to just purely a job description with, you know, a, a piece of paper and saying, look at me, I graduated from somewhere that says I'm good. And I, I think that changes everything. Like, I don't think we can even begin. We call it, the, we, we call our version of where things are right now is the MySpace time period. We, MySpace, we all thought MySpace was really cool. <laughs> I didn't imagine a Facebook beforehand, but as soon as Facebook came, it, it just, everything morphed. And I, I imagine we're right in the, we're right at the beginning portion of that process. I think you just showed your age talking about Facebook instead of uh, TikTok. A good call. Good call. You go ahead talk about TikTok. Let's see you do it. <laughs> you definitely can. I don't even have Facebook. Listen, I would love, love to leave it with Jeremy, but uh, something when he talked about, I just, the, the data that we're missing, it, I got the wrong data. The one we really want is one's the job performance. Being able to understand how yeah. training connects to ROI and return for both the student, the employer, and the government, that is the holy grail of data that we are constantly looking for. And it's going to be for us, if you tell me what's in the future, it's really about lowering that amount of time that someone has to be in a classroom with us to get to that work. And we're going to be really looking and saying, okay, do we have to be 12 weeks? Can we be one week? Can we be three days? Can we, do we, can we be 30 weeks depending on the student? And really getting them into that job, but not stopping there and really integrating the learnings that happen more and more into the work that they're doing. And that's really what the, the vision and dream of where we're going to be going is. Wow. Spectacular. Ish, what, are, what, did I, what did I say, Ish? Mine would be really good and, and I'd go first, but his would be better. I knew it. <laughs> Guys, it was a pleasure having you both on today. Any last minute plugs in terms of how the listeners of Reshaping, uh, Reshaping Education podcast can learn more about yourselves, keep up you guys with you guys on social media, and then also learn more about Lighthouse Labs? Yeah, absolutely. I think the, the biggest plug I'll give is something that's about to come out, and it's our career trajectory report. I think uh, all our schools, all boot camps uh, should be thinking about how we're looking at people who've graduated, not just now, but years after and how they are doing. Lighthouse is about to put out its career trajectory report, its second version of it. Because I really think we should be evaluated. You know, if you think about it from the learner perspective, that learner started school at the same time as someone started a college program or a university program. It's how are you doing three, four, five years after? Again, go to university as an 18-year-old. But as a 25-year-old, when I start, how am I doing three years after is actually the defining point of your choice. And how are they growing that we know these are not just junior developers that are topping out? right? I think the career trajectory report is something I would have everybody look at with us and any other group, because that's the defining element of what makes boot camps really special. Josh. All right. That's a place where Jeremy says. <laughs> awesome. Great. Well, I'll include all the relevant links in the show notes. Listeners, thanks for joining us today. With that, this is Ish and Jeremy and Josh signing off. We'll catch you guys next time. Take care. Thanks so much, Ish. If you enjoyed that episode, would really appreciate a review or a subscribe on the podcast player of your choice. It really helps us get the word out. With that, this is Ish signing off.